But as we begin uh, a new year, on, in one sense, uh, January the 1st is just another date. Uh, in another sense, it's an opportunity for us to stop and take stock and, and think about and pray about our thoughts and our plans and our dreams and more importantly, God's thoughts and plans and dreams for us um, in this coming year. And as I've been pondering, uh, what, as I've been seeking his face for me uh, and as we've been seeking his face for each of us, um, what, would be, what would be the one thing or the main thing that would be important uh, to commit to, to, to taking into uh, the new year? And uh, in order to try and answer that, I want to read from the end of Ephesians 3. Paul um, is teaching, and in, in Ephesians, Paul always in, keeps interrupting his teaching with prayers. It's like he was very exuberant when he was writing Ephesians. It's, he didn't know how to stop. And the sentences sometimes go on and on and on in Ephesians. And you think, Paul, for goodness sake, put in a comma, you know, put in a full stop. Um, but this, he says this, verse, chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, <coughs> sorry, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that, it is, uh, that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is one of the, for me, one of the most beautiful uh, parts of scripture. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and our prayer for ourselves in this coming year is that we would be, we would know supernaturally the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God, which is beyond knowledge. How can you know something that is beyond knowledge? It's beyond human understanding. It comes by revelation. May we know how deep his love is for us because everything begins and ends there. Um, uh, one of the things about New Year's is, how many of you have made a New Year's resolution? Gosh, um, most of us haven't. And the reason most of us haven't, if you're like me, is because by, by day two, we failed. Isn't it? Isn't it? I told you this before, but I'll say it one more time. Um, when I first became a Christian, uh, I didn't understand how these things worked. I was 16, and uh, the first New Year's Eve as a Christian, I made a New Year's resolution that on midnight on Christmas Day, on New Year's Day, 
um, I would not, from then on, I would not sin. I would live a holy life. And, uh, and I meant it. I meant it. And um, I remember New Year's Eve, I sinned extra just to get it out my system. Um, and then um, came midnight on uh, New Year's Day. And, and I want to tell you, and I say this in humility, and I say this with no pride, I managed it. I did not sin from midnight New Year's Eve for about eight hours. And then I woke up. Uh, that's when it got difficult. That's when it got tough. And, and you know, the, the, the way to do Christianity, which is by gritting your teeth and trying to be good, doesn't work. It's never worked. The way, the way to do this stuff is, is instead of trying, trusting and leaning into him and leaning into his grace and, and relying on him, not, not leaning on our own understanding, not leaning on our own strength. Paul recognized this. That's why he said to the Corinthians, uh, um, uh, my grace is enough for you. Uh, says the Lord, uh, my power is made perfect in your weakness. There's nothing more wonderful than coming to the end of yourself and discovering you come to the beginning of God. There's nothing more wonderful than coming to the depths of your depravity, your weakness, your brokenness, your sin, and discovering that the one who knows you the best loves you the most. In our culture, we hide in shame from, from letting people know the worst about us, the most difficult stuff about us. But we can't hide from him. And the one who knows me the best, who knows me perfectly, loves me the most. To know that, to know the length and breadth and height and depth of his love changes everything, changes everything. And, and so we, 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 we receive his forgiveness rather than, uh, rather than going through life trying to earn it, um, trying, trying, to, trying to be good enough and always feeling that we're failing. And, and when, when we try and live according to legalism, it always, always, always ends up killing us. Legalism kills. The law kills. The spirit gives life. And I, I just want to look at uh, a little bit of a, the doctrine of grace. Because I, I, on this, on, as we begin the new year, it's so important we understand it and we refresh our memories. Do you know the Corinthians? They, they were terrible. The church at Corinth, I mean, they were into promiscuity like you wouldn't believe. They were into all sorts of terrible stuff. You know, they didn't care for each other. They were arrogant. They were, they were self-indulgent. Um, they, they, uh, they were always trying to be one up on each other. I mean, they were, they were the church from hell. And yet you read Paul's letters to them. And while he pointed out 
where they could do better. He loved them. He loved them. Now, the church in Galatia, they didn't seem to have any of those um, of those big sins, for want of a better word. And yet, what is amazing to me is Paul was more stern with the Galatians than he was with the Corinthians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why, why was he firm with them? Why was he so angry with them? Not angry, why was he so, so definite with them? Because they'd chosen to go back to legalism. And they'd chosen to go back to rules and regulations to make themselves right with God. And he was saying, who, who did this? Who, whoever told you to go back to that? You know, may, may they be castrated, if you, if you want the correct translation. Uh, our Bibles make it sound a bit better. You know, they, this is... This is this is, this is terrible. And the reason he was so firm was because the law gives death. The law kills. And, and the Old Testament law, it wasn't that the law was wrong, but it's just that we're built so that we're never, ever, ever going to obey the law in a way that, 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 that causes God to love us, that brings life. Because even if we managed it, we'd be so proud that we'd managed it that that would disqualify us. I don't know about you, but occasionally when I have a good day, I can get, I've had a pretty good day. I've been pretty good today. I've served today. I've been here on New Year's Day when the so-called senior pastor... I thank God that I am not like him. <laughs> and you know what? When I go down that road, there comes death. There comes death. And it's interesting that when the law was given on Mount Sinai in Exodus, if you read it, 3,000 people died on that day. 3,000 people died. When the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to life. The Spirit gives life. That's what Paul says at the end of Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8. You know, who's going to rescue me from this law of sin and death, O wretched man that I am? And then he begins with Romans, in Romans 8 by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has triumphed over the law of sin and death. It's triumphed. We're a people of the spirit. We're the people of life. And so there is ready forgiveness. There is quick forgiveness. There, there, is not, there is not grudging forgiveness from God. The, um, there's a, a lovely passage. I, I was supposed to speak on um, Christmas Eve at the midnight communion, but I wasn't, I wasn't well 
I, I, spent, I spent Christmas in splendid isolation and it was wonderful. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. That's, it was, I'm an introvert. Uh, and um, and I, I was going to talk about uh, uh, Simeon and Anna. And um, when, let me see if I can get to that place. And Simeon was an old man. And uh, he came um, to see Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The old man Simeon, he says now, it's called the Nunc Dimittis, now may your servant depart in peace for I have seen your salvation. And Simeon exits stage left. And who comes in straight after him? Anna, the prophetess. And Anna also worships Jesus. Now that, that's just a story until you know that some to often in the scripture there's layers of meaning. And that's why it's good to study the scripture because there's layers of meaning. Simeon, that the name in Hebrew literally means, it comes from um, the Hebrew word Shema, which is to hear. And um, the Shema in, um, in Israel was the great, and it still is, it's the great prayer that the Jewish people will pray at twice a day, morning and evening. It's the summary of the law. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it's called the Shema because it begins like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the whole law, is it comes under the heading of the Shema, to hear. And that's where Simeon comes. And, and Simeon, in this passage of Jesus, he represents the law. And so he, representing the law, says, Now let your servant depart in peace, for I have seen your salvation. I have seen your salvation. And who comes after? Anna. Anna, the Hebrew for Anna, as many of you know, is Hannah. How many, have we got any Hannahs in the, in the room? A couple. Do you know what Hannah means? It means grace. It's grace. Hannah is, it's, the, the Hannah means grace. So, so the law departs and grace arrives. That's why John says, in John chapter 1, um, 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 he says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come in Jesus Christ. This is the age of grace. This is the age of grace. And you see that, I haven't got time to unpack it all, again and again and again in the scripture. You know, um, when um, uh, uh, Jacob um, you, you know, he wanted to marry um, um, Rachel. And Rachel was the woman he loved. 
and uh, Laban, uh, Rachel's father, tricked him, and he ended up, it's a bizarre story, marrying Leah, the older sister, instead. And Leah was the, the one who wasn't loved, and, and it, it was another seven years before he could marry um, Rachel. And uh, um, his son Joseph uh, was the 11th son, and the 10 older brothers, Joseph's 10 older brothers, they were all, um, they were all sons of Leah, the wife who wasn't loved, or a servant girl. They were sons of the law, 10 of them, I think representing the Ten Commandments, which speak of the law. And then came Joseph, who was the son of Rachel, the woman who was loved, the son of grace. And guess what? The ten older brothers, the older brothers, the, the legalists always persecute the sons and daughters of grace. And they sold him into slavery and they tried to sell him to death to kill him. And that's, that's the story throughout history. That's what makes sense of the parable of the prodigal son. The main point of the parable of the prodigal son is not the younger son running into the arms of his father because Jesus would have been a bad storyteller if that was the main point because any good story has the punchline at the end. And, and, and it would mean that the, the bit that, about the older brother is tacked on. And when the, the younger son who'd, been, who'd walked away, who'd squandered his inheritance, who'd got rid of everything, who had nothing left, the younger son who had, who'd messed up everything, he comes back hoping that he might be a slave in his father's house. The father runs to meet him and welcomes his back, him back as a son and throws a party and the older brother gets really angry. And he says, I've been slaving away for you all my life and you didn't even kill a young goat for me, for my barbecue. But when this son of yours who has squandered your wealth on prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And you have a big party. And the father says, my son, everything I have is yours. It's always been yours. What made you think you had to slave away for it? It was always yours. It was, and you see, when you live as, with the older brother syndrome, when you live in that syndrome, when you live in, in legalism, well, I'm doing as, as much right as I can, then what you do is you get resentful at those who, who, who come in and who just get stuff for nothing. You've worked for it all your life and, and they just get it for nothing. And you, it's not fair. It's not fair. And you know what? That sort of attitude kills you. It kills you because that means you can't receive grace. It means you think you've got to earn God's love. I mean, just as I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, just imagine if you'd planted a church and you'd led it for 30 years <laughs> and you'd served and you'd poured your heart out and then this child 
this fetus comes along and he just takes it on from you and he ends up just imagine what that would be like <laughs> of course you know I love it I absolutely flipping love it and the truth is the truth is it's, it's never about that it's about the joy the joy of giving, the joy of generosity, the joy of loving, the joy of cheering on others and those who that will do things that you could, you could never even dream of and being happy for them. That comes from being free. That comes from being free from legalism. There's, there's two amazing stories in the scripture and I finish with this. And they're right next to each other. And it took me ages to work it out. I couldn't understand it. First of all, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says to him, uh, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And then Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, and the rich and the rich young ruler says, "I've kept all those since I was a child." And then Jesus says, "Well, one thing you lack: sell everything, get rid of everything, all your money, all your wealth, and come follow me." And the rich young ruler goes away very sad. And when I first read that, and for quite a while when I read that, I thought, "Jesus, you gave the wrong answer." Didn't you do theology at university? <laughs> Haven't you ever read about the Reformation? It's not about keeping the commandments. Haven't you read any Martin Luther? It's not about doing that. You, ha, Jesus, you've given the wrong answer. You, you've said to I mean, if, if that's the case, we've all had it. Who sold everything, given away everything? We're all stuffed. Why did you say that, Jesus? And then it gets more bizarre. You turn the page and Jesus walks into Jericho and there's this little guy called Zachary up a tree. And he's also, we're also told in the scripture that he was very, very wealthy, but he got his wealth in bad ways. He stole from his own people uh, and gave to the Romans and kept... He was Mr. 20% for himself. And, and Jesus, Jesus looks at him. He points to him and he says, Zach, Zach, come down. I'm going to hang out with you tonight. I'm coming to your house tonight. And it's like, wait a minute, Jesus. The first guy, you said to him, you've got to sell everything. And he couldn't do it. Zach, you don't ask him anything. You don't ask him to do anything. He's just standing. And Anne, he's a really bad man. What's going on? And it took ages for the penny to drop. The rich young ruler said to Jesus, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And then Jesus is saying, well, we're going to base it on what you do. You have to be perfect. Obey everything, give away everything, if it's based on what you do. Zach didn't ask that. 
Zach didn't think he had a hope. And Jesus says to him, come here. I'm going to show you what grace is. You haven't even asked, but you're with me. And do you know what Zach's response? It was something like this. You know, I'm going to, anyone I've wronged, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give them four times the amount and I'm going to give away a whole load of my money. And he doesn't do it, folks, in order to earn Jesus' love. It's a response to his love. Our only hope is to know his love and to respond to his love and to be secure in his love. And first of all, that's, that's, that's teaching that, that we need to grasp you know, the reformers died for this truth. It's salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It's a wonderful, wonderful, liberating doctrine. But it doesn't stop there. Because if that's the way he loves us, that's how we're to love others. And it frees us to love others like this. And you know what? In a culture that, that writes people off, that cancels people, in a culture of hatred, uh, occasionally I make the mistake of looking on Twitter at some of the trending things and I feel sick. I feel sick at the, at the nastiness, the judgmentalism, the hatred, the smallness, the smallness of it all. And do you know, when we know as the people of God that he loves us because he loves us because he loves us, that frees us to be generous and to be generous to those who don't deserve generosity. Why? Because I know someone who's been generous to me when I've not deserved generosity, who's kind where we can be kind to people who don't deserve kindness because we have received his kindness. Who can, who can want the best for others instead of standing in, in petty jealousy. Who have big hearts who will forgive and let go because he has forgiven us when we don't deserve it. I'm not saying it's easy. When you've been really, really hurt, and I know what I'm talking about, it's sometimes hard to let go. But do you know what? The other option is to die. The other option is to let the root of bitterness slowly strangle you from the inside. But to know forgiveness is to give forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Let's choose in this year to be a people who dwell in the amazing love of God and who reflect it in the way we live before others. Because that is the way of healing. And that, I tell you, will be such a witness in our day, in our world, in a world of meanness and pettiness and spite and, and unforgiveness and judgmentalism. 
to be a people who live in the opposite spirit is such a freeing thing. Lord, may we be those people.